25. We're gonna resume in Deuteronomy 25 where we had uh, left off last week. So Lord willing this morning, we'll cover starting in verse five through verse 12. And this is what the word of the Lord says. If brothers dwell together and, not, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has who had his sandal pulled off. When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. It's been over four years now. It was March 29th of 2019. And that was a very special day for our family. It was my wife's birthday, and that was special unto itself, but there was other things that were going on that were also special as well. Uh, at that point in time, early in that morning, I woke up as the last male descendant from my grandfather's side of the family. That meant I was the last one bearing the name of Finson, the last male who could perpetuate my grandfather's name. And later that day, that was no longer true. I was able to adopt my firstborn son, Isaac Charles Finton, and now our family name was put onto another generation, and it was a joy and blessing. Uh, certainly for me, I know it was a joy for my, my dad as well to see our family name go forward into another generation. And one of the unique blessings about that day was not just that Isaac got to take my last name, but he was blessed with a foster dad uh, who took care of him before we adopted him, who was just a real blessing to Isaac. And his name was Charles. Charles has a daughter, granddaughters, and great-granddaughters. He has no male descendant. So Isaac's name is Isaac Charles Fenton. When I told his foster dad, uh, who, who's old enough to be my dad, we call him Papa. When I told him what I was naming Isaac and what his middle name was going to be, unshockingly, he cried. He was very blessed and, and encouraged by the fact that his name was going to continue on through Isaac. So Isaac's name was special because he was carrying on essentially two family names in his one name. And for me, it was a real privilege to be able to name him. It, it almost felt like naming him was kind of just looking at the situation God had provided and just analyzing rather than thinking creatively. And I think it was more of an enjoyment for me than it was even for my dad or for his papa um, to be able to give rather than receive. It's truly, God's word is right. It is more blessed. I've been reading a, a book, though, that on the on Ecclesiastes, and it's a, a commentary and analysis of, of what Ecclesiastes teaches us about life. And it raised an interesting point, because not always do we believe, and this is true for me as well, not always do we believe that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. Oftentimes, we want to be the receiver. 
We want to be the one taking. And he was pointing out something very profound, that even when it comes to the admonition to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, oftentimes we find it to be easier to weep with those who weep. And the reason is that when we weep with someone, they are in a lower position than us. There's something easier about that. And he's pointing out that a real test for our Christian maturity is if we're able to rejoice with those who rejoice, to be able to be happy for someone who is perhaps in a higher position than us, to rejoice for someone who has more blessings than we have. That reveals something deep about our contentedness in what God has given us in himself. And we were discussing this yesterday. This gets at the heart of what real love is. To love someone is to want to see them flourish. Not to think about how did they make me flourish, but to simply be concerned with how does that person flourish? How do I love them in a biblical way? We are called in the scriptures to honor all people. And ultimately, we honor all people, as we've been discussing in Deuteronomy, as a way of honoring the God whose image they bear. That is why we honor all people. And so what we see is if we are humble enough to honor all people, to even rejoice with those who rejoice, who might have things that we want, but we don't have, we find that that place of humility is exactly the place where we find exaltation in Christ. And so this passage is going to be a little bit of a hard passage, but I think that the main thrust of the passage is that we need to delight in the duty of love God has called us to. We need to delight in the duty of love God has called us to. So uh, as Pastor Jeff and I have been going through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we're of the same mind that it seems that there's a general structure to this main body portion of Deuteronomy that started in about chapter 6 and is going through chapter 26 that um, is set by the 10 words that are laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So the 10 words kind of become the map, in our opinion, of how the rest of this main brunt of Deuteronomy goes. And for, for how we interpret the order of the 10 words, we would take the ninth word and the 10th word to be two separate coveting commands. There's an admonition to not desire your neighbor's wife. And then there's a command to not, uh, or uh, sorry, I got that flip-flop. You're not to covet your neighbor's wife. You are not to desire your neighbor's house. Those are the two separate commands. And what's interesting, we've discussed this at different points, is that as you go through the 10 words, it, it starts in this second section with you shall not kill. And there's these different prohibitions that instruct us in how to love our neighbor. And all of the prohibitions that come after you shall not kill have this word and to tie it to you shall not kill. Because the pursuit of sin is ultimately a pursuit of death. And what's further interesting about that is We've been talking about how there's these actions, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and then we've been discussing you shall not bear false witness. That's what we've been discussing is that you're moving from actions to speech, and now with these coveting commands, you're moving from actions to speech into your own heart desires. There's an inward focus on how our sin itself breeds death from inside us to outside of us. And what's interesting, when we look at those two prohibitions against coveting, it's important that that correction I made for myself, where we're looking at how it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. And then it goes on the list of things in the house. The word for coveting is, you know, we think of that as a very material word. 
when you think of coveting, you think of someone has, you know, a nicer car than I do, and I want that car. But yet that's the word that's applied to your neighbor's wife. That word for desire that's applied to your neighbor's house, that is a more appetite-driven word, even used to talk about a sexual appetite. And yet that's a word that's applied to materials. And I think these ideas are kind of linked and woven together to show us that sin is pervasive. If you think you can covet your neighbor's wife and not end up in full-blown worldliness, you have been deceived. If we allow for one tentacle of sin to wrap around us, we should be certain that other tentacles of sin will wrap around us as well, and it will quickly breed death. I think that's the whole thrust of 1 John 2, where it takes these ideas and ties it in a bow. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the and pride of life is not from the father but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of god abides forever i think john's taking these woven ideas and saying all of that is springing from the same place and that's why it weaves together it's a love of the world that is in contrast to a love of god and because of that it leads to death And when we're looking at this, this dynamic of coveting, how it kind of bridges into what we're going to discuss here as, as I've been thinking about this, when we covet something, especially when we covet or desire someone else's spouse, we are making a distinct proclamation of the unworthiness of essentially everyone besides me. That man doesn't deserve that woman. I do. That woman doesn't deserve to be cared for in a proper way. I deserve to consume her with my appetites. God does not deserve to be treated as enough for me. God's desires are not deserving of being followed. My desires are worth being followed. My glory is what's worth being pursued. Coveting is distinctly a pursuit of shaming all besides self. There is the pride of life. And what we're going to see here in this section that I think is building off of this idea of coveting is that if you have a covetous heart that's ultimately oriented towards your own glory, it's going to come out in how you live. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and we live as well. How, what is going on in your heart is going to manifest in your life, and if it's growing in James 1 terms, as we've discussed as well, it's going to breed death. And this is where... It's not simply enough to avoid what's prohibited. It is correct to do that which is the opposite, to do that which is ultimately honoring to God. So hopefully we've tilled the ground enough so that when we go through this hard passage, we, we have some general direction. And what we're going to do as well is that, and we were discussing this yesterday morning, while we're paying attention to these verses, it's not just the ninth word that I think gives some clarity. What has come before and what's about to come after this section is going to give a lot of clarity as well. This is meant to be understood in context. It's not like these are just random train cars that are smacked together into a train. This is kind of like chain links where they overlap one to another. So the section we just discussed on false witness is actually going to really help us understand this section. And I think verses 5 through 12, because they're discussing marriage, really help us understand the ninth word of not coveting your neighbor's wife. But to understand that, we have to understand what has come before when we discuss false witness. So all that to say, 
let's pay attention to the levels of context so that way we understand the passage the way God would have us to. So in verse five, it says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So this is oftentimes, actually, if you're reading the SV, it has it here in this in the subheading. This is called leveret marriage, uh, as you as you see it discussed. And maybe like me, when you're reading this before, you thought, what does this have to do with the tribe of Levi? And come to find out, it doesn't have anything to do with the tribe of Levi. The term lever, L-E-V-I-R, where you see leveret marriage, L-E-V-I-R, that's a Latin term that just means husband's brother. So this is a marriage of a husband's brother uh, to the widow. So lever means husband's brother in Latin. So this is discussing a situation where there's a widow left behind. And there's conditions that are laid out for uh, showing what situation God has in mind when he's giving these instructions through Moses. So the first condition here is that if the brothers dwell together, that word for dwelling together is used in Exodus 15. And I think that gives clarity to what's in mind with this stipulation. In Exodus 15, Israel's brought through the Red Sea, and they are rejoicing in the fact that God has brought them to dwell with him in his presence. This idea of dwelling is covenantal. It's intimate. These are brothers who are the same covenant community is how it seems to be indicated. So the first stipulation is that these are brothers who are the same covenant community. And in addition to being of the same covenant community, the brother who is deceased does not have a son. He does not have an heir to carry on his name. And so what is laid out then is that the, the husband's brother has a duty to go into this wife, marry her, and care for her. Because through marriage, that wife has a right to the family property because she has become part of the family by marrying that brother who has now deceased. And so the ultimate goal of this marriage and is actually laid out pretty clear in verse 6. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So in this situation, what's going on is that the firstborn son from this leveret marriage, where the brother marries the widow, that firstborn son takes on the name of the deceased brother. He becomes that brother's son, not the actual son of the one who biologically gave him birth. And it's so that he can carry on the name of that deceased brother. So the cost for the brother who is living is that his firstborn son in this leveret marriage has to be given up to his deceased brother. He also would, in this instance, have to care for the land that the deceased brother had owned. But this is, again, where we're talking about the context helping us to understand this. This is certainly a high calling and task and duty. And yet this is something the, the brother who's caring for his deceased brother should enjoy. You shouldn't muzzle that ox while he's treading out the grain. And indeed, this is a discussion ultimately of, of name and property. So the brother who is doing this task should do this, knowing that there, this is a, a good task. This is a blessing for him to take on for the sake of his brother. And it's interesting, this certainly is a, is a way for which the widow can be cared for, and that is right and good. But the main focus in the verse here and through the passage is really on the brother who has died. It says, and the first son 
whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The ultimate focus is on that name for the deceased brother not being blotted out of Israel. That idea is going to come up again in verse 19, where we where God's going to talk about blotting out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This brother, who is part of Israel, one of the covenant community, he is not to be treated in that way. He must be cared for in a way so that his name continues. And I think there's a parallel idea here with the, the repetition of that idea of blotting out to say, if you treat your brother like he's some Amalekite, an unbeliever, what we're going to see coming from that is that you're going to be the one who is treated like an Amalekite, an unbeliever, and dishonored. We don't care for our family. Paul is it on 1 Timothy 5. We are worse than an unbeliever. What this text is laying out and what's pivotal for us to understand today is that if we put our desires above the duty God's given us, we are going to leave a legacy, and it is not going to be a good legacy. Oftentimes, in, in Christian discussion, we talk about eschatology a lot, the study of end times. And we talk about it a lot, both in terms of what happens at the end of human history, but also in terms of what happens at the end of our lives. What happens to me when I die? And far too often we forget the aspects of what's going to happen to others when I die and my legacy is solidified. Especially as a Christian man. Exodus 34 has been an important passage for what we've been discussing where God reveals his name and in seeing how that name is part of the, the 10 words and really the foundation of the 10 words in Deuteronomy 5, God talks about how fathers and what they do are visited on preceding generations. And in this text, the hope is that this brother is going to provide a good godly son that will carry on his deceased brother's name in a way that is honorable. Legacy is important. Legacy is a means by which we can continue to bear fruit even after we are dead. So the question becomes, what constitutes a good legacy? Is it living a long life and remaining around for as long as possible? Is it leaving as much money as you possibly can for those who would inherit from you? Is it being super nice and giving your children whatever they want? And I think what the Bible indicates about a good legacy is that it is ultimately found in faithfulness. A good legacy in practice is not to be found in seeing your children gather your grandchildren around them so that they can tell the grandchildren about grandpa. No, a good legacy is found in the children gathering your grandchildren around them so they can tell the grandchildren about Jesus because that is what you showed them to do. And that is where a Christian legacy has nothing to do with our remembrance, but the remembrance of our Lord and Savior. We do not need to be remembered in order to have a fruitful legacy. So how can we know what sort of legacy we are leaving? I think part of that boils down to who are we seeking to lay forward in our day-to-day -day lives? Are we seeking for ourselves to be laid forward and to be magnified and made much of? Or are we seeking to make much of Christ? Are we seeking that he might increase and that we might decrease? 
And when it comes down to the specific discussion of children, I think one of the operative questions that parents have to ask is even, and especially from a young age, is do we have our child's heart? Have we loved our children and connected with our children in such a way that they are inclined toward us and following us? And in light of that, are we daily, constantly guiding them ultimately towards Christ? I think far too often we have had this question of where is a child's heart come up when it is far too late. Instead of approaching parenting like driving, where you make a thousand constant little corrections to stay on the right path, too often Christian parenting and American evangelicalism has been a reconsideration once we're already in the ditch. God is beckoning us to think in terms of honor and legacy. And I think that's what's at the heart of this passage. And we have to understand it. Verses seven through 10 lay out the consequences of an unfaithful legacy here, of a, of a pursuit of selfishness and dishonor. It says in verse seven, and if the man does not wish to take his brother's name, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. The refusal to care for the brother's name, to honor the brother in this way is such a significant offense that it is distributed publicly to the leaders in the community. The brother's wife is to go to the elders and to state plainly what he has done, this brother has done to his deceased brother. And very quickly, this brother who has given dishonor to his deceased brother is going to be receiving dishonor. Look at verse 8. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. If you notice in verse 8, the elders don't go into this process of dishonoring him finally and fully without having warned him. The elders call for him. They speak to him. And there's this level of commitment to dishonoring the brother. He persists in wanting to, to dishonor his brother and not care for this widow. And that leads into this, this result. The brother's wife shall go to him in the presence of the others and pull his sandal off his foot. There's a lot of interesting discussion about what does it mean that the sandal is taken off the foot? And I think one of the things that's indicated by pulling the sandal off the foot, and some commentators lay this out helpfully, is that it indicates the brother is not retaining his property rights to that ground that he would have otherwise had a right to walk on. The widow has a statement of ownership for her deceased husband that says, this land is now mine to hold on to because he forfeited it by not fulfilling his duty. And what's interesting, that word for sandal, it's not the most common word used in the Old Testament, but where it is used, it's used in Exodus 3, when Moses is called to remove his sandal from his feet and approach the burning bush. It's used in Joshua 5, where Joshua has removed his sandals when he's approaching the commander of the Lord's army. And I think that is leading us into this idea that's laid out where she is going to spit in this man's face. When... Miriam seeks to betray Moses. God says, if her father had but spit in her face, 
she would have been sent out of the camp for seven days and remained impure. I think there's this idea that's being laid out symbolically here. His sandal is being removed. He's having this shame of being spat upon his face. And I think it's indicating that this man, just like Moses and Joshua removed their sandals when they approached God, this man's going to be approaching God. With that spit on his face, he's approaching God in shame. He is going to be judged and evaluated according to his shameful actions because he has not loved the Lord his God and he has not loved his own brother. And what's scary is I was thinking about that. I don't think the warning and the shaming of the brother here is really for him. He's been warned. He has persisted. This is a warning, I think, for the community because this is happening in a very public place. We must not live this way. We must not live in a way that dishonors God and dishonors others. It says in verse 10, And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Verse 7 comes to this fulfillment here. He would not perpetuate his brother's name, and now his name is not perpetuated. His name is perpetuated as a name of shame. We'll have more to say on Genesis 38 as we go forward, but suffice it to say, I think this passage is helping us to understand the significance of what Pastor Jeff read for us earlier in the service from Genesis 38, how much of a travesty it was that, that Tamar was not cared for by Judah's sons, and even by Judah himself. They acted shamefully towards her. That same dynamic that's laid out in Genesis 38 and is commented on here in Deuteronomy 25 is setting the stage for what's going to come in the book of Ruth. The most immediate kinsman in that dynamic that could have married Ruth and cared for her and perpetuated the name of the deceased does not do it. He seeks to preserve his inheritance. He seeks to preserve his name. Boaz is willing to sacrifice to care for the widow and to honor his brother. And the irony in the book is that Boaz's name is listed in a very honorable way. The kinsman who sought to preserve his own name is the one who's not named at all. If we seek our own honor in life, we will not find honor in the end. If we are humble before God, he will give grace and he will exalt us. And there's a deeper meaning to this passage as well. Alec read from Matthew 22 for us, where the Sadducees use this very passage to put forward before Jesus to try to trip him up. In that passage, Matthew recounts how the Sadducees deny the resurrection. And Jesus' response, let's go and flip back over to Matthew 22. I think it'll be more helpful if we do that. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 22. I think how Jesus responds here is really helpful in general with Old Testament hermeneutics, but I think especially with this passage. If you look at verse 29, they lay out this scenario for Jesus from using Deuteronomy 25 as their, their background text. And look what Jesus says. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So let's take that second phrase. They don't know the power of God. By denying the resurrection, 
they're missing the fact that God, who made everything by his word, can do whatever he pleases. He lays out an example as well. He lays out that he is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And he lays that out to say that that conveys the point that God does whatever he pleases. He has the, the resurrecting power within him because he is omnipotent. How does that, though, convey God's omnipotence? And the fact of the matter is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all dealt with infertility to some level. God allowed them to encounter seemingly impossible birth circumstances and showed that he has the power to create. And he used each of their lives to convey that. And I think Jesus is using that example not just to demonstrate resurrection power, which it does. He's using that to show a deeper problem that the Sadducees have that I want us to avoid. Because he doesn't just say that they don't understand the power of God. They don't understand the scriptures. They're missing something that's at the very heart of what we just read in Deuteronomy 25. And I think the hint of what's at the heart of Deuteronomy 25 is actually laid out in the example that Jesus uses. He is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. God not only is able to make all things new, he has promised to provide a seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head and indeed make all things new. And that one that is promised is sitting right in front of them. They have missed the scriptures and the power of God. Jesus and Matthew lays out at the beginning of the gospel. God is with them. This is Emmanuel. And they don't see and understand him. When we're looking at this dynamic in Deuteronomy 25, I think Deuteronomy 25 is building off of a pattern. A pattern where the firstborn is exceeded by the second, or one who comes after him. And this goes all the way back, ultimately, to Adam. Adam brought death into the world through the very cowardice that we were talking about here in Deuteronomy 25. Instead of fulfilling his duty in the garden to protect and lead his wife, he abdicates, and that very cowardice that's laid out in Deuteronomy 25 that Adam shared is the means by which this sort of death enters into the world. This is setting the table for a second Adam, that seed of the woman, that who's going to come and fulfill his duty, fulfill that humility for his bride who is wrapped in death. He will conquer that death by death. And because of his willingness to shed his blood, to cleanse his bride, he is given the name that is above every name. That honoring that is at the heart of what we're discussing in Deuteronomy 25 comes to its fullness in our Lord and Savior. Revelation 2 goes on to talk about how for, how for all those who are in him, they are given a new name that only he knows. He is the one whose name is above every name. And this passage, I think, is intended to drive us away from death towards one who lovingly gives freedom from death, and that is Jesus Christ. So if you'll flip back over with me to Deuteronomy 25. <clears throat> I do think there's, it's worth considering some of the practical implications of this passage for today. When we have widows discussed in the New Testament, um, a lot of the, the instruction focuses on considering first whether, and you see this in 1 Timothy 5, whether that widow has 
family that are able to provide for her. And what's interesting is you, if you look at the discussion of widows in, in uh, 1 Timothy 5 and then in 1 Corinthians 7, there's no mention of a husband's brother, of a, of a lever or a leveret marriage in those passages. But what is mentioned is that for a widow in 1 Corinthians 7 terms, if she's going to remarry, she must remarry in the Lord, in the covenant community. So there is a big parallel there. It's not about a biological brotherhood if she's going to remarry. It is about a spiritual brotherhood if she's going to remarry. So I think that's where we see the, the hard principle of Deuteronomy 25 carry over in the New Testament. Now, certainly, there could be a circumstance where a widow would be supported by the church, and the qualifications that are laid out in 1 Timothy 5 are, are specific, just like we see levels of specificity here in Deuteronomy 25. That would have to be a widow who... Uh, is of a certain age where she's not necessarily able to remarry and not able to uh, contribute in such a way as to sustain. And she has to have a legacy of godliness to her. So that as the church supports her, she's going to continue and perpetuate such godliness. That's an interesting parallel too, because what this is looking at is that the good brother is the one who cares for his, his deceased brother's household, a good qualified widow is one who's cared for the saints needs in the same sort of way. But then the other last qualification to lay out is that she does not have a family that could support her. So I do think there are aspects of instruction here, but I don't think this, this principle is directly binding uh, in this way where it would necessitate a biological brother marrying um, the widow of a deceased brother. But certainly the church should be inclined to care for, for widows with a level of high expedience. So I know that's been a lot and it's been hard, but now we have to finish it and it's going to get harder. So we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. And I think these are all part of this broader section discussing different marital aspects in society. And what we're going to discuss is I'm going to try to exposit it and talk about some practical things. And then we're going to consider this at a more theological level after that. So let's go and read verses 11 and 12, and we'll just try to exposit our way through it. And I'm going to not read from the ESV. And I'll, let's see if you can tell why I'm not reading from the ESV. You'll probably see it very quick. So I'm going to read from the Legacy Standard Bible. And this is what it says. If two men, a man and his brother, are struggling together, and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him, and she puts out her hand and seizes his genitals, then you shall cut off her hand you shall not show pity. So the big difference is that the phrase at the beginning should read, if two men, a man and his brother. I do not know why the ESV does not stipulate this is a man and his brother. Because the, the brother word is actually used from what we were just discussing in verses 5 through 10. It's a repeated term. And the ESV did translate it as brother, but they didn't hear for some reason. I, I don't know why, but I think it's actually really, really important to, to interpreting the passage here. Because when it's talking about a man and his brother entering into this altercation, I think we're seeing this as just being a simple spat between brothers that is not actually life-threatening. There's a fitting defense of a woman's husband in verses 8 and 9 where the widow's husband is being dishonored by the brother, and she takes a proper, just course of action to defend his honor. 
She goes to the elders to say that the brother's not doing what's honorable. She defends his name in a right biblical way. In this instance, this appears to be an overreaction to the fact that she does not like that these brothers are having an argument and disagreement. I think that in part leads us into the next section that's going to talk about equal weights and measures. It's going to discuss a proper and fitting response. And I think that's there to help hint at the fact that this is not a proper and fitting response from the woman. And what's ironic is that the wife is not trusting that God is going to provide for her, even if for some reason this brotherly spat results in her husband's death, she is not trusting God to provide for her. And the irony is if this brother kills her husband, leveret marriage immediately would go into effect. So as I'm interpreting this, I think the, the intent that is laid out here is that this is laying out a woman who is reacting to a spat in a way that is an overreaction. And what she is doing in her overreaction is not only shameful, she, by hurting the other man in the way that she is, she is cutting off his future. She is seizing him in the private parts in a way that would ultimately lead to him not having a continuation of his name. In that way, she's actually like the, the bad lever, the bad husband's brother from the previous passage. And the result of this circumstance is that her hand is cut off. That word for hand can be interpreted to be symbolic of the male reproductive organ. And so this seems to be, you shall have a fitting response for what she has done to this man. So that's what seems to be operative here. Her hand is cut off because she has overreacted in such a way and hurt this man in such a way. And they are instructed to have no pity. Your eyes shall have no pity. They are to have an impartial reaction to this crime. And I think, I think this is instructive for us. Um, I think evangelicalism uh, has failed to teach properly that women and men are both alike sinners who stand fallen before God. Men are not more sinful than women. We are both sinful. Certainly there's ways in which women tend to sin that are different than the ways that men tend to sin. But just because sin can be more subtle from women does not mean it's less subversive. And we have clear examples of that on the broad scale in our country. Abortion being perhaps first and foremost. Millions, tens of millions of murdered babies, the vast majority of which murdered by their own mothers. Additionally, in our area, there are rampant drug problems, and those drug problems include mothers and even pregnant mothers who wreak havoc on their own babies by continued drug use while those babies are in the womb. These are women sinning grievously. And indeed, in this passage, this says nothing about the husband being punished. It is only the woman's hand who is cut off. We would all do well to humbly accept what the Bible says about our sinful state and not presume that we are in a different category of being less sinful than anybody else. We all have blood on our hands. We all deserve, as we've been discussing, 
coming back to verse 16, each one of us deserves to be put to death for our own sin. And we all have plenty of sin to be put to death for. The prohibition of not coveting your neighbor's wife is beckoning us to an honest heart examination. And if we are honest in our heart examination, we will see that we all frequently dishonor other people, whether that's through lust or through selfishness, or even through the sort of fearfulness that we're seeing here in verses 11 and 12 that would result in such an overreaction. But God has called us to fear him, to fear nothing else, and to love others in selflessness. On a practical level, uh, this is something that, as I was talking to Lindsay about the the passage that, that came up, what does this mean about women showing self-defense if they're in a dire circumstance. And as I've been laying this out, I think this is a situation of overreaction, not of dire circumstances. This is a man and his brother having a spat. I don't think this applies to a self-defense situation when a woman's life or perhaps her child's life is truly threatened. In the immediate following context from here in Deuteronomy, you go into the book of Judges, in Judges 4, you have Jael driving a tent peg through a wicked man. And then you have Abimelech having his head crushed by an upper millstone that a woman throws on his head. In both of those instances, those women are showing deadly self-defense and they are praised for. So I don't think this passage is saying a woman who's in a dire circumstance cannot show self-defense. I don't think that's at all what it's saying. So I'm not a self-defense expert. Ladies, if you're wanting more self-defense instruction, please talk to your husbands or talk to, if you're a single lady, talk to one of the pastors for for further clarity and we can at least point you in someone's direction who has more expertise. Um, But suffice it to say, if you need self-defense, don't let this be a hindrance to doing so. That's what I'm trying to get at. If you're a lady in danger, show self-defense however you need to in that moment so that you can pursue safety. So I I do think we, I want us to be careful to understand this, this passage correctly, but I also want this to serve as, as, as good instruction as well, because I think the more daily prevalent way that this needs to be considered and applied is in the fact that this woman is acting in a dishonorable way out of a disposition of fear and self-preservation. And that was actually what first Peter three was talking about as well. Peter was saying that those wives who might even have unbelieving husbands need to be submissive and even respectful to those unbelieving husbands And what Peter is laying out for them is that they are not to fear their circumstances or to act in a dishonorable way because they excuse it for the purpose of self-preservation. Now, Peter says, and you are her children, Sarah's children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what that is getting at is that I think Christian women should be so strong and bold because of their confidence in God, not their circumstances, that they're able to endure much for the sake of Christ. So obviously, I I just talked about with self-defense, there are situations where certain measures need to be taken, but I think a, a woman's daily disposition does need to be towards honor and respect, even in difficult circumstances. And even if significant measures are needed to be taken in light of terrible circumstances. I think one of the ways that this is illustrated, perhaps to to kind of tie a bow on what I'm laying out here is 
in the garden, Eve, instead of living underneath Adam's authority and headship, even as he was failing to be a good head and authority, Eve decides that because she doesn't see Adam providing the good life, I, she decides she's going to dishonor her head and pursue what seems to be the good life according to what Satan has said. That's, what's, that's what I mean. That's what I think is at the heart of this dynamic. Do not dishonor your head in the pursuit of what you think is the good life. And to, to wrap up and to discuss some of the theological implications of what we're discussing here, <clears throat> this pursuit of dishonor, this pursuit of blotting out someone's name, whether in not perpetuating the name or hurting someone in such a way that their name can't be perpetuated, it's all in a Genesis sort of three-way satanic. It's a pursuit of death and shame and dishonor and ultimately sin. And I think that's where the way that this passage is building off of Genesis 38 and the, the royal lineage that's in the tribe of Judah, and then it's picked up later and the royal lineage of David in the book of Ruth is helping us understand how to see the real heart of even this section of the passage. It's interesting because in, in, uh, one commentator was talking about how in Genesis 38, Tamar obviously acts more righteously than Judah, but what she did was not fully righteous as well. And what's interesting is her firstborn has a scarlet cord tied around his hand, but he doesn't get to arise to the place of prominence. And this commentary was saying, it seems like there is a consequence for her misstep in not fully trusting God in that circumstance. But again, that serves this broader theme to say that there is going to be a king coming from Judah's line. And his blood is not going to, or that scarlet that indicates some level of hand guilt, like we're talking about in verses 11 and 12 here. His blood was going to speak a better word. It is... It is better even than the scarlet thread that word for scarlet is used to talk about the thread that's put up for Rahab so that she's delivered from the wrath that's coming when they invade Jericho. We have blood from our savior who delivers us from God's definitive final wrath. I named my son, Isaac Charles Fenton with the middle name and last name for those reasons that I had laid out earlier. Um, to honor his papa, to honor my dad. I named him Isaac with his first name because he was an answer to prayer. Uh, years of infertility, uh, adoptions that we hoped would go through and didn't go through. And there was certainly laughter. And the name Isaac means laughter. And I named him that because of an appropriate joyful response. I also named him Isaac as a reminder to myself. I think in the Old Testament wasn't the real ultimate seed of Abraham, the one that they were really hoping. As joyous as it was to be a dad, I wanted to make sure I didn't think that this was everything God had for me. Because as much as I love my son, he cannot save me from my sins. My hope has to be in Christ. That is the only proper way I can enjoy my son and love my son, is by finding my rest and foundation in Jesus Christ and conveying that gospel hope to my little Isaac. Indeed, our Savior sheds his blood to redeem his bride. And he fulfills what the first Adam failed to do. And the beautiful thing is that we become 
a fruitful bride in him as his church. Sarah goes from the barren woman to the woman whose tent in Isaiah 54 needs to expand. And we should be a thankful people because that's us. We should not be a coveting people who are discontent with the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we should enjoy God. We should fulfill our duty knowing that this is the good life. And even in difficulty, be able to rejoice at that calling to show God's surpassing glory in the midst of difficulty. So let's pray that God would give us grace to do that. Father, you bring life out of death, and you've done that for us. You've done that for us now, as Alec was praying earlier. You've done that for us spiritually. You are going to fulfill that and do that for us physically. And indeed, just as we were discussing, we pray that we would be a people who does not fear. Help us to fear you. Bring holiness to completion in us. But work in us in such a way that you are magnified. That our delight is to fulfill the duty and calling you've given us. So please use us to glorify you, that we would honor you, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. As uh, Tony comes to lead us in our songs, I'll stand. Uh, Paul wrote to uh, his, his son in the faith, uh, please, I have to see, he'll be up to send. I just quit. Sorry. As, as uh, uh, Paul wrote to his son in faith, this saying is trustworthy from 1 Timothy chapter 3. This saying is trust or, trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not uh, be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by the outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Um, as, as you guys know, Corey has has uh, led and been a part of us and has led for for uh, uh, several years now. And as the uh, uh, deacons and elders have met, we have uh, uh, joined together to to put him forward as uh he has uh, felt a call to to this leadership, the elder, and has aspired to that role, and we would like to put him forward. So please be prayerful about that and consider. Um, within the next, and I'll talk to Jeff, either next week we'll have next business meeting, there'll be a time for examination and questioning, and and and, and he's put himself forward at any time between now and then to, to talk with him and to share with him your feelings and thoughts and whatever they are as we go forward in this. And we will... Uh, discuss this further but uh to be prayer for this be prayerfully considering this now please stand church